Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 11 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode, episode 11 of Inside Quizzing, we are going to be talking a little bit about the follow-up uh, stuff from the Madras Meet, or the Meet Highlights uh, from the Madras Oregon Meet that just happened a couple of days ago, uh, which was extraordinary, uh, extraordinary fun. And uh, we're gonna we have a listener question, which is both very interesting and very timely uh, that we will be going through, and a few other questions that kind of popped out uh, via the meet, and a few other conversations that happened. And then we're gonna spend a fair bit of time, uh, kind of similar to last week, going into question writing. Uh, we're gonna talk talk about some use cases, styling tendencies, best practices, some opinions about what makes good questions and maybe not so good questions. And that'll be sort of at the theoretical level. And if we have some time, maybe we'll do a couple more uh, of those question writing workshoppy things that we were doing last podcast out of chapter one of First Corinthians. But to mix it up a little bit, we're going to go into uh, chapter two. So with all of that uh, said out there, um, Scott, what were kind of your thoughts about the Madras meet and highlights and interesting stuff? And we were we were commenting, we were chatting a little bit before the show about uh, the drive uh, out there, which, you know, for both of us is a fairly lengthy drive, but it's also a very pretty drive. Uh, and so I just sort of wanted to comment uh, that there were certain parts of the country I had never been to, to Madras before, and it was a quite a cool experience uh, driving through the area. The geography was very unique, and I got to enjoy a lot of it, both on the way in and on the way out, because I didn't have to drive. I was just a passenger. And which is pretty awesome. And I got to enjoy it on the drive in and drive out because I usually don't pay attention when I'm driving. And so uh, I get to kind of look at the scenery go past me. So it makes me an extraordinarily unsafe driver, but I think it's worth it. <laughs> well, regarding the meat, uh, I had a bunch of excitement up front because some of the hardware didn't work and then the quiz benches didn't work. And so there was a lot of scrambling right up front. But then after that, the meat ran very, very smoothly. And I was very pleased with how everything went. That's awesome. I lucked out in terms of equipment. Everything worked exactly as expected. Um, there was one uh, pad on one strand that didn't work, but it had this little X kind of marked on it, which I, I assume was indicative of the fact that the pad was bad. Everything else worked exactly as expected. It was fantastic. We never had any, no malfunctions, no problems. I was, <laughs> I was extremely excited about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the Wi-Fi network was great. So I was using CBQ, uh, CBQZ, uh, not locally installed on my laptop, but I was using it remotely off in whatever server farm. I think it lives in Atlanta or someplace. So I was running that, uh, uh, through the interwebs onto my, my laptop and, and things technically worked out quite nicely. Um, I don't know about you, Scott. I got a couple of, actually, I think I got three challenges in my room, although I probably want to call it 2.5. One of the challenges was sort of uh, a quizzer or a captain started a, a, a challenge, didn't quite make it all the way through, decided, nah, it's probably not a good challenge and sat down, but I kind of picked on it picked up on what he was getting at and was like, oh, yeah, he's actually right. Um, so, and and so uh, that was kind of cool. Normally, I, uh, the last couple of meets, I've been a little bit lamenting over the fact that I wasn't getting a lot of challenges. And this uh, this meet was a happy change to that. It was exciting to get some uh, very intelligent challenges uh, in my room. In, in fact, one quiz, 
Um, I don't want to embarrass him, although, I mean, I, I want to compliment him on it. One particular uh, captain uh, rose to challenge in uh, on behalf of another team, actually uh, challenging that, no, that that other team should be counted correct. And it was it was a perfectly articulated challenge and uh, quite appropriate. And, of course, he was right. And uh, it was just a great experience for me. That's wonderful. And if I remember your story correctly, that, um, that quizzer also challenged in my room, and his challenge was accepted. It was a case of me having – can you have tunnel vision for your ears, tunnel ears? <laughs> right. Um, but I was looking for p- the words praise and prophesize, and he gave the words praying and prophesying, and none of them were unique words. So the meaning was really all all there, and I didn't pick up on that the first time through. So I was glad that there was a challenge that I could review, listen to the tape, and then accept the challenge. Yeah, and one of the challenges in my room was critical in the allowance of a situation for a quizzer to stay on the platform and actually get a uh, – well, I actually, I mean, she wouldn't have aired out anyway, but I, we were on question 20, and she initially aired on a question. It was challenged, uh, and I accepted the challenge, which allowed – basically, we threw out the question, redid question 20, which she was able to jump and answer correctly, and that allowed her to quiz out uh, on question 20, which uh, I think that's that's great. It's a fantastic uh, way to in, both encourage her and encourage other quizzers to memorize and, and participate. That's wonderful. I'm always happy when experienced quizzers do that. For me in my room, there were definitely a little bit more, especially on Friday, there were a little bit more no jumps than, than I would have liked to have seen. There was one quiz there where there was uh, quite a few no jumps, um, which was a little unfortunate. Um, but I mean, that just, it, it provides a greater opportunity, I think, and, and it, uh, it, encouragement to folks who are uh, memorizing just a handful of verses, if you just pick up just a couple, a uh, couple few more, there's still quite a lot of opportunities, uh, even this late into a season. There was also some great quizzing as well. I remember there was a quiz, I think early on on Friday, where uh, the teams were pretty much neck and neck all the way through and uh, very high quality quizzing. I don't think there was an error the entire quiz. I think there was like, no, maybe there was one error and there were no no jumps or something, but it was it was a very very strong uh, quiz across all three teams, and that that's very exciting. That's awesome. I was uh, going through all the score sheets today, as I do on Mondays, to check all the stats, and I did notice there was a prelim with nine no jumps, and then very soon after it, there was a prelim where a team got a fourth person bonus on question number ten. So it just showed an incredible range of quizzing there. Yeah, yeah. And which means, you know, you should take that, you know, as, as a quizzer and a coach, take that as a word of encouragement that it doesn't necessarily take a huge amount of effort for a small amount of gain. It's, it's, I think, quite the opposite. A measured amount of investment will result in a large gain uh, in, in, in placing and, and in, in the competition in these meets. Absolutely. I think one thing, um, one fault of mine in my life is, I don't want to expend the effort to reach a very large goal. And so because of that, I won't expend a small amount of effort to start me on the road towards that large goal. I was listening to a podcast today, um, and someone was recounting a story with someone who wanted to run three times a week. Um, and they were posed the question, well, why don't you just run once a week and start with there? And the response was, well, running once a week doesn't do you any good. And so I think the same sort of thinking can be applied to quizzing. Um, you may think that memorizing one verse is not going to help me increase my average, I'm going to have to memorize 100 more verses or 200 more verses. 
But everyone who does have 100 verses memorized started with one verse. And um, establishing a routine and a system for memorizing a verse a day or a verse a week will start you on the path to really um, building in a lot of memorization. Absolutely. I mean, you'll uh, anybody who attends any of the Pacific Northwest meets knows that I tend to walk around with a ridiculous looking and extraordinarily long blue scarf. And part of that is because I love scarves. Um, but a, a, another part of it is I, I, I'm hoping people remember that I keep referencing it every time that I uh, give the devotionals, um, typically about once a year or something like that. I'll, I'll talk about the scarf. And the idea behind the scarf is to knit a scarf is actually really easy and at the same time really hard. It's incredibly easy to knit one little tiny spot on the scarf, um, the actual act of, of, you know, making one loop and then tying it to the next loop and tying it to the next loop. It's, it's incredibly easy to do, but it's incredibly hard to make the scarf. All you have to do though is just keep doing this easy thing over and over and over and over again. And I don't want to make it seem like memorization is easy. It, it definitely requires work, but really realistically, we can all sit down and memorize a handful of words. We can all sit down and memorize a verse. And if we practice at it uh, over the next, the, the following couple of days, uh, it's fairly easy to kind of lock that away in long-term memory. If we can do that, that's kind of the initial loop of a scarf. The, that's great. Let's, we just need to add to it. We just need to do that simple thing over and over again, and eventually you'll have this ridiculously long scarf, otherwise known as a full memorization of the material and go to internationals and all the other kind of good things. And really, anybody can do this. I mean, my six-year-old daughter is is memorizing parts of, of First and Second Corinthians, well, actually just Second Corinthians, uh, parts of Second Corinthians. Um, this year, she's planning on memorizing parts of John next year, along with her, her brother, who is uh, in the quizzing program now and also memorizing as well. It really, uh, young and old, anybody can get into the material and anybody can, and I think should. I think we're called, uh, to memorize, uh, Deuteronomy chapter six. We, you know, we've talked about that a couple of shows ago. I think uh, everybody is called to do some kind of memorization work if possible. Yep. And, um, I think it's helpful to not put a ton of pressure on yourself to put in lots and lots of dedicated time every single day. Uh, I, that's why I always encourage quizzers to read through a chapter if they're not feeling like putting in more work than that. Because there were many, many quizzes at the meet where there were no jumps that probably could have been gotten with a little bit of review. And I'm not talking quoting 100 verses that you memorized by reference in a session. I mean reading two chapters aloud in your room before you go to bed or something like that. Yeah, or listening to it on a podcast, or not on a podcast, listening to the material uh, on audio uh, is also helpful. It's not as good as sitting down and memorizing with the text in front of you, but even just listening to the material, you're going to pick up certain words and phrases and ideas. They're going to last with you. They're going to sit with you, and you can get questions that way. Uh, I know there's at least one quizzer in our district, and I suspect more than than just the one, but I know for sure there's at least one who actually writes questions off the material that he's memorizing as a way to practice getting deeper into the material. And I think even just the act of writing questions, even without memorization, is a way to get uh, closer uh, into the material. You're not going to be able to get, uh, you know, quotes or finish the verses or anything like that. Probably pretty difficult to get reference questions that way. But I know from personal experience, um, last year, in last year's material, uh, I didn't sit down as a quiz master and try to memorize the material, but I wrote questions over the material and 
and I participated in a uh, the, the practices of a nearby church. And uh, there were times where I was leading the practice. I was I was like practicing being a quiz master for them. But there were times where I would just go and sit in one of the chairs and and uh, in, engage in the act of of quizzing myself. And there, you know, I certainly wasn't a, a good quizzer, having not spent adequate amounts of time preparing. But even just writing questions over the material, I was able to pick up a few questions every quiz, maybe one or two questions every quiz uh, on average. I know when I was a quizzer, I would really put off memorizing and quoting for quite a long time. And instead, I would write questions. I wrote pretty much every question. Well, not every question. I, I wrote multiple answers and reference questions and situation questions. I didn't write interrogatives or key verses. Um, but I wrote the questions as questions. I wrote the, the material out by hand, often highlighting key verses or key phrases or keywords. I would listen to the material a lot. And I also put uh, unique words on individual um, bits of a note card. And then after maybe a week of doing this for the material repeatedly, I would then try to quote it. And I was quite close to being able to quote it right then. Uh, and so it wasn't too much more work to pick up um, being able to quote it. And from there, it was just quoting it a lot and adding in the repetition to make it solid and move it to long-term memory. Yeah, yeah. Lots of different ways to go about it. A lot of different ways to engage in the material. It just takes a choice to begin engagement with the, with the material. And of course, uh, I firmly believe, and I know Scott does as well, uh, that any level of engagement with the material is going to be a, a huge blessing, both to you and to other people that you engage with in your life, uh, both now and in the future. Definitely. Well, let's see. Uh, we do have a listener question. Uh, this one comes in from Aiden, and it's a, an extraordinarily uh, well-timed uh, question, very timely question, uh, given where we are in the year. We just wrapped up our last regular meet uh, in, in Madras uh, for uh, the Pacific Northwest, and we are looking forward to the Great West Invitational. And Aiden's question is as follows. For rookies or people who have not quizzed out of PNW, do you think you could cover some of the key differences between the PNW rulebook and the CMA rulebook and how they will practically affect quizzing in a podcast episode before Great West? Well, yes, indeed, Aiden, we can and we are and we shall. Uh, the, Scott, what, do you, what are some of the uh, things that jump out at you? There's, in my mind, there's two Two that are the biggest above all others, but I don't think that they're going to be super impactful to our quizzers. The first one is question type distribution. So the CMA rulebook has different question type minimums and maximums than what we use in Pacific Northwest because those minimums and maximums got changed in the off-season and PNW decided to just just keep trucking along the way that we had been. So at, at uh, Great West and Internationals this year, this is a non-narrative year, so it's an epistle year. So for interrogatives, there will be between 9 and 16 in, in the quiz. Within PNW, there's 8 to 12. So there, there can be more interrogatives. For finish the verse questions, there can be 3 to 4. And currently, we just have 2 to 3. For quote questions, there can be 3 to 4. Currently, we have 1 to 2. So that's more than doubling, really, uh, for quote questions. For reference questions, there can be 3 to 7. Currently, there's 3 to 5. And then multiple answers, there can be one to two, and currently there's two to seven. So it's quite different than what we have now. I think that's it on the question type minimums 
and maximums, I guess there's the small point um, that the rulebook now clearly states that reference multiple answers only count as reference questions and do not count as multiple answers, which is something I have long lobbied for. And I'm happy that quizzers that specialize on multiple answers um, will be guaranteed some true multiple answers without uh, the reference component to them. And for reference quizzers, um, there's really not a change, but before there was some ambiguity over whether a reference multiple answer would count as a reference question or a multiple answer question for the purposes of these question type minimums and maximums. And there's also some key verse list differences. I mean, we in the Pacific Northwest have a key verse list and we publish a key verse list. Uh, the CMA rulebook does not have a published key verse list, but do you know if the question writers are pulling from a shared source or it's sort of independent or how does that work at Great West this year? So it is independent. Our hosts, Western Canada, are um, generating all, writing all the questions and generating all the question sets. Um, and so we don't know what the, what the key verses will be and neither do the Canadian Midwest or the Western Canada quizzers. But we have a former quizzer here who often specialized on key verses who is putting together a study list for our PNW quizzers that, uh, cross your fingers, will be ready by midday tomorrow. And it will be, it will definitely be bigger than the PNW key verse list, but it will, the, the goal is for it to be manageably bigger. So it won't be double the size. It'll be a little bit bigger that will give our key verse specialists the opportunity to memorize some of those non PNW key verses if they want. Um, and the ones, the verses on there will be specifically picked for their likelihood of coming up on a finish the verse or a quote at Great West. Well, and then that's basically the two big things that are going to be different. There might be a handful of smaller things that may come into play. Uh, one thing is, you know, keep in mind the P&W quizmasters tend to uh, generally all read and stop uh, with a certain level of precision. That it, I mean, it's not perfectly uniform, but we tend to attempt to be fairly uniform in the very rare cases where I've been able to watch other quiz masters uh, uh, run quizzes. I've noticed that, generally speaking, we, we tend to be fairly equivalent on our reading and our stopping, mostly our stopping uh, times. We don't tend to dribble on uh, for too much longer. Uh, and so that may not necessarily be the case uh, always. It's it's highly quizmaster dependent, of course, and and where those quizmasters are coming from. I know one of the quizmasters at uh, Great West is from the Pacific Northwest, and he is uh, what's a good way to describe him? The Grand Poobah of quizmastering, I guess, and he is quite good. Uh, so you're you're going to feel quite at home. Uh, it's not going to be too terribly crazy, but it is something to keep in mind that a Quizmaster's style may be a little bit different than what you're used to, um, so just be careful about that. One thing that is going to be on the agenda there are XYZs, um, and it's been eons since I've actually done an XYZ. I think it's been like since my last incantation like over a decade ago. So, Scott, can you describe what XYZs are all about? Yeah, XYZs are... An extra prelim. So once prelim prelims are done, teams, so there will be 15 teams at the meet, teams 7 through 15, that's nine teams, correct? Teams 7 through 15 will be mixed together in quiz X, quiz Y, and quiz Z, or as the Canadians say, quiz Z. And those quizzes give those nine teams an extra quote-unquote prelim to 
distinguish themselves. So let's say you are, let's start with the good. Let's say you are 10th after prelims. You're the 10th place team, and you want to be in that top nine and have a chance to win the meet as a team. Well, in that, in your XYZ quiz, you have the opportunity to score more points in your quiz than teams 7, 8, or 9 do in theirs um, and try to surpass them. So one nice thing is your outcome from quiz X, Y, and Z are just added to how you've done so far in your prelims. So if you're 10th but you're super far behind, you probably don't have much of a chance to make it up in that quiz. But if you are 10th by one team point, you have a wonderful chance to pass the team that's in ninth. And there is therein lies the bad, because if your team's 7, 8, or 9 after the prelim prelims are done, you kind of feel like you've already made it through prelims to semifinals, and you have an extra quiz where you're kind of trying to hold on for dear life, because um, humans are very risk-averse, and so you kind of feel like, or not risk-averse is not what I'm trying to come up with, but we hate loss more than we like gaining. And so um, it feels super bad if you're in 7th, 8th, or ninth, and then after XYZs, you fall out of 7th, 8th, or ninth. Um but it's really just an extra prelim where those nine teams are seeded strategically, and it it creates some very exciting quizzes um, and quite a lot of drama usually. Yeah, indeed. There's uh, you have a reference uh, in our notes here that says stricter reference question requirements or determining the reference word or phrase. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yep. So this is something that we're doing in PNW today. Um, starting at the beginning of this year, and it's a situation that rarely comes up, but when a quizzer is needing to provide a reference question, their question must contain the determining reference word or phrase from the question that's on the Quizmaster's card. And really what that means is in those pesky 50-50 reference question situations, the quizzer has to guess the right question. Um, They won't be given the benefit of the doubt. And that's really... That's really all that it is, and now that I think about it, I don't know if I've used this to rule this year. Like, I don't think I've needed to. I don't think so uh, either. It's so rare that that we have uh, rapid enough jumping on a question that's not fairly straightforward anyway. But yeah, I don't – I can't recall a time where I've actually ruled somebody incorrect because of this rule. But it, I mean, it is in force. Yep, it is in force, so this is not a change from how things currently are. Um, but it is a change from last, past years. And I think this rule probably gets a lot of um, publicity because it it's such a corner case, and yet it not exposes, but it brings, it brings to the surface um, two kind of philosophical camps about Bible quizzing and jumping speeds, which doesn't necessarily need to be hashed out over reference questions, but that's just how it ends up being hashed out. <laughs> um, I think reference questions in this scenario are kind of Switzerland. They'd like to be um, not involved in any alliance, but they just kind of end up being. <laughs> uh, reference questions now have a political, uh, geopolitical sentience. Yes. All right. So in what ways are is Great West different from a what somebody would expect from a district-level uh, quiz meet environment that's maybe unrelated to the rulebook? So – I actually want to go back a little bit and talk okay. about way, ways that district championships is different from the district meets. So within PNW, we have five district meets, and then uh, the top 18 teams move on to district championships. And those top 18 teams are about three-quarters of the district. So it is a pretty high percentage. But um, 
the overall level of competition is quite different when you're just dealing with the top 18 teams. Because during the year, it's very common to have two very strong teams in a prelim, but it's really, really rare to have three strong teams in a prelim. Well, when you're only having the top 18 teams available for prelims, um, you you end up having quite a lot of prelims with three very, very good teams in the quiz, which lead to um, zero no jumps and probably a higher jumping pace. And it really, um, you could say it ups the difficulty, but I think it, it really allows quizzers that have worked harder to distinguish themselves and score well because of the harder competition. When the competition is easier, two quizzers of different preparation can uh, often score very similarly. But when those quizzers are faced with tougher competition, the gap in results starts to show itself more and more. And I think Great West is very, very similar to that. It's just that instead of dealing with the top 75% in a district, you're dealing with the top um, 15% in a district, which is radically, radically different. And so take the top 15% in a district, put them on teams. Some some of the districts send teams of five, and PNW used to, but a five-person team um, comprised of quizzers from the top 15% of a district can make a very, very, very strong team. Um, and the quizzing is it's different because of the increased jumping speed and the fact that in most quizzes, there are multiple quizzers who have some... Um, you could call it a specialty, but I would just say uh, much higher than average proficient, proficiency in a given question type. And so there's there's no gimmies at Great West, and every single question that is gotten right um, takes a lot of effort. And um, I think it's I think it's a wonderful it's a wonderful test, and it really shows the quizzers that have both prepared really well and execute really well. And the other aspect of Great West that I loved was how team-oriented it was. Within a district, um, all the good teams have a top quizzer on them who probably made Great West. But if that top quizzer did not quiz out in every quiz in a district meet, their team probably wasn't going to win that quiz. So it was highly dependent on whether the top quizzer on the team quizzed out. Well, Great West is nothing like that. Um, There's, you know, out of 50 quizzes in the meet... There might be five to fifteen quiz outs total, um, and at a normal PNW meet, there's a hundred, hundred and forty, a ton more. Um, and so, because of that, team success at Great West is not reliant on one quizzer quizzing out quiz after quiz after quiz. Um, you're much more reliant on shared consistency among the four or five members on the team, leading to third person or fourth person bonuses. Team bonus questions. Um, oh, that reminds me, Griffin. I think that bonus questions are going to be a, going to the assigned seat at Great West. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's definitely something we don't do at the district level. I'm going to have to go back through my emails to see if that was discussed specifically, but I'm, I'm guessing it was, and I can guarantee you that that's what we'll be doing. So that that will be a change. Uh, very important to note that one. Yeah. So. Um, I guess we do have quite a few quizzers that have not experienced the science seat bonuses. So what a science seat bonuses are, um, so if one team errors, it goes to a toss-up. And if someone on that, someone from the toss-up question errors, the third team gets a bonus question. Well, within the district, it's a red as a question where the team gets to jump. Um, anyone on the team gets to jump. 
But what we're going to be doing at Great West is the seat of the team that aired on the toss-up, that corresponding seat of the team that did not air on the toss-up will automatically be chosen to answer that question. And so there's no jumping involved. That quizzer will just come forward to the mic. The question will be read and then click the timer will start. And then you have an opportunity to answer that question. And what it does is um, it rewards teams where uh, it rewards teams that have more quizzers that know the full material. Very cool. Well, any other Great West thoughts before we move on? Uh, I could probably have a ton, but I think we've hit the big ones. All right. Sounds good. And, of course, practice uh, for those who are attending Great West, well, practice in the Pacific Northwest District, anyway, starts uh, this Saturday. This Saturday at ABC, officially between 10 and 3.30, but I will be there before 10 and after 3.30 if you want to come and have specific practice or ask me questions about anything or hear more about Great West. So come on out to ABC and we'll have a great time. Sounds awesome. All right, a couple of other little random questions that kind of popped up as a result of some things that happened, uh, some quizzes and situations that happened it, at, at the, the Madras meet this last weekend. Uh, and these are fairly straightforward, but I think uh, kind of interesting. So a unique word uh, appearing only once in the entire material is defined thus as unique and is the, is required to be provided by the quizzer even in uh, standard interrogative questions. Normally, uh, a synonym can be replaced by a word, but a unique word, or they used to be called keywords, so I, if I accidentally slip up and call them keywords, that's, that's what I mean. They're basically unique to the entire material. If a unique word is in the question or answer, the, 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 those unique words must be provided uh, by the quizzer uh, during their 30 seconds to answer. But then the question shows up. There are certain cases, not very many of them, but there are certain cases where a word appears multiple times in the whole material, but only in one verse. So in other words, it might appear two or three or even more times, but it only ever appears in one verse. And then the question, of course, then is, is that technically, legally a unique word? And we go to the rule book and under correct answers, we'll start there. There's the sentence, a unique word is a word appearing in only one verse in the quizzing material being studied. So it's not specifying how many times that word can appear, but it, it's a word that appears in only one verse of the material. And then if you go to interrogative questions, it also defines it there. A unique word is a word that appears only once in the material or more than once if that unique word is found only in a single verse. Indeed. And then the second sort of question situation thing came up. Uh, this was actually a question that I asked in my room. It could have been challenged, uh, but it wasn't. And actually, a, a, I think it was a captain. It could have been a coach. It was either coach or a captain or something like that. Uh, talked with me about the question after the, the quiz was over. And I think they were, they're, they're absolutely right. Uh, the question uh, it, uh, derives from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Uh, and the question was marked as a multiple answer question, and it read as follows. What sets itself up against the knowledge of God? But it turns out that can't actually be a valid multiple answer because of the grammatical use of the plural form of the word set, uh, because sets is plural. Therefore, uh, it can only apply to every pretension. It can't apply to the other side of that multiple answer. Yep, and it, it makes sense when you're 
deciding if a multiple answer is valid or not, to just split it into chunks and evaluate each chunk by itself. So in this case, you would go, all right, every pretension sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Yep, that flows. That's grammatically correct. It makes sense. Arguments sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And you can say, no, that doesn't make sense. It's not grammatically correct. And so because there's only one sensical, grammatically correct answer here, there's only um, one answer to that interrogative question. You see this in other cases. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up a dumb example here, but um, what I'm shooting for is where there's a who and a what type of interrogative. So let's say um, darkness fell on Peter and the field. Well, darkness fell on what? You can say that the field is a what. That makes sense. But Peter's not a what. Peter's a whom. And I know, Griffin, we don't want to be overly specific on what is the correct interrogative. But at least in a case like this, I think it's pretty um, pretty clear that Peter's a who and a field is a what. And so you couldn't write a multiple answer where there is a grammatically correct um, where there is more than one grammatically correct answer. And I would contrast that with maybe it says the prophet in the field. And the prophet can be a who, but the way that it's phrased, it can totally be a what as well. And so darkness fell on what prophet in the field. That would be totally valid in my mind. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it was just an interesting uh, situation where, you know, when I was reciting the question, it never dawned on me. Uh, that it was invalid, and it was only after the fact. Because uh, I mean, as you're as you're as you're focus as a quizmaster in that moment, uh, as you're reciting the question, you're focused on your your tone, your speed, your pacing, uh, enunciation, uh, all of those sorts of factors. You're also uh, carefully watching for lights. You're not really thinking in terms of grammar uh, per se. And so then, you know, somebody jumps, they answer they answer it correctly. Great, you're correct. You move on. Nobody challenges, and it, it never occurs to you that, oh, that that's actually grammatically incorrect and shouldn't be a multiple answer. So I really appreciated uh, the the person, whoever it was, I, I don't even remember who it was, but I, I really appreciated somebody bringing that to my attention because then I could go back and mark the question and say, yeah, that's invalid. Uh, that way I'm, I'm slowly, progressively making the question sets uh, better and better. Yep. And that's a great time where we'd love to have the luxury of an answer judge whose sole job is to focus on validity of the question and doesn't have to think at all about cadence and timing and stopping consistency of reading the question. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, if anyone out there is uh, in the Pacific Northwest District anyway, uh, is interested in maybe volunteering to be an answer judge, but you're thinking, oh, I, I would never be good enough to be an answer judge. That's okay. We will be very, very happy to train you and help you. And we would very much be eager to assist you in your journey towards answer judgedom. Uh, so please uh, email either myself or Scott or both of us. Uh, and, of course, our email address for the, the show is iq at cbqz.org. But you can uh, e email either both of us there or individually, and we would very much like to get you plugged in. Well, so then uh, that kind of segues perfectly into our question writing series of things and stuff. So talking about specific use cases, philosophy, styling, t tendencies, best practices, and so forth. Um, Scott, you've got a pretty good chunk of uh, stuff here. Why don't you take it away and I'll kind of chime in as I see fit. All right. And I put together a, a list of kind of stylistic ways that I write questions. So very, there's very little talk in here about valid versus invalid, but this is really, really targeted at best questions over merely valid questions. So the first one is the word if. So when an if clause appears to retain meaning and flow, 
it's best to write the question in the form, if this, then what, as opposed to this, then what, or simply eliminating the then portion and just going, if what. And I talked about it in a generic way, so let's go to the material. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 3.15. phrase there says, if it is burned up, the builder will, will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. So I wouldn't want to write a question, if it is if it is burned, how? And just leave it at that up, um, because that's kind of a segment of a phrase. There's you're kind of losing the whole meaning of it. I would rather write the question: If it is burned up, what? Or if it is burned up, the builder will what? Because it retains a lot more of the meaning of what what's being said in this verse. Go two verses down to First Corinthians three seventeen. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. So don't write the question: If anyone destroys what? God's temple, because that's it's like. It's like you started talking and stopped mid-sentence. If anyone destroys God's temple, like if I just said that to someone, they would say, and 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 then what? Like, what's coming next? Um, so I would write a question, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will what? So it in- includes the whole thought. Now, destroys is a unique word. So you could totally write the question, destroys what? Because then you're not really talking about any of the if this, then that sentence structure. And destroys what? God's temple. It's a perfectly... Valid question. It's a great question. It flows. Um, let's see. We'll give you one more. One more example. First Corinthians six four. If you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? So I would never write the question. If you have disputes about what? Because again, it's just it's like half the meaning of what's being written in that verse. So right. If you have disputes about such matters, do you what? Or do you ask for what? And again, disputes is a unique word. So if you want to write the interrogative, disputes about what? Totally valid. And I think that that's a great question to write as well. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And then the amusing thing in a lot of these examples is there is a unique word in almost every single one of these. Uh, I think actually in every one of them, that in all of your examples, there's a unique word that actually allows for a shorter question without starting with the if, if you really want to just uh, get uh, something shorter rather than asking for more information that's there. Correct, but you also wouldn't want to write the question, disputes about such matters, do you what? Because there's there's like it's no so, meaning there. You're like yeah, jumping so into the middle. Yeah, it's but I, terribly awkward. But I see this again and again, especially at internationals, where it's clear the desire is to write a question that is unique immediately. And so any part of the verse or the phrase that is not unique is just chopped off the front. Um, and to me... I don't think our purpose is to write questions that are unique fast. I think I think it's to write questions that both test a quizzer's knowledge of the material and flow well with a reasonable amount of information. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I would make the argument that if I know that – and if we've talked about this a little bit before, actually a lot before. But if I know as a quizzer that the the question is always going to be key within the first one or two syllables, I'm going to – pay less attention to what those syllables are and just count syllables and jump. I'm not going to be thinking of, uh, you know, pacing myself if you have and, and thinking, oh, well, that, that doesn't really get jumpable until the fourth syllable. Uh, it, it makes me, I think, if I can rely on, on the keyness being there within one or two syllables, it sort of turns me into a sloppy jumper, I would think. You are absolutely right, Griffin. And that is one, one thing you see at both I'll say Great West Internationals, but it's really any meet with a high level of of um, competition is the teams that score the worst um, do not jump slower than everybody else. 
they jump at the same pace as everyone else. They just know less material or know the material less well. Um, and so it's a much different dynamic than um, district quizzing where quizzers and teams that don't score very well often are doing so because they just don't win a lot of jumps. Um, but I think when the teams that don't know the material well are jumping at the same speed as everyone else, if you're going to throw unique words up front, then basically everyone is is getting an easy level of test and theoretically is going to score probably pretty close to one another, even though they know the material to vastly different degrees. Yeah, absolutely. So the second point, um, I know I just talked about don't chop off the front of a question just because it's not unique, but uh, my next point is talking about throwaway words, as I call them, like and, but, then, or so. So oftentimes, I don't think these words, especially at the beginning of a verse, don't carry a whole lot of meaning. So like 1 Corinthians 7.13, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to leave, live with her, she must not divorce him. I don't think you need to start that that question at the and, um, unless you really want to, because I don't think that and provides meaning or flow. Um, and I would rather just omit it from the question. Now, looking over at 1 Corinthians 2.5, it starts off, so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but in God's power. And phrases like so that can carry a lot of meaning because there's kind of a contrast being implied there, whereas often but and then so even words like but and then, which can be kind of transitionary, um, I don't think they often carry a lot of meaning, but I definitely want to examine the verse and the context and see if I think um, it does have meaning to the question. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, one word questions with a unique word should be written if they flow, but not purely because there's a, a unique word. And there are many times where there's a word like a or the before the unique word that including that in the question will create a better flow for the question. So let's see if I can find one here. Well, how about 2-4, right above where you were in 2-5? A demonstration of the Spirit's power versus demonstration of what? Yeah, I mean, just start it, a demonstration. It provides a more complete thought and a very good flow of lead-in to that, that unique word demonstration. I'm also looking at 1 Corinthians 7.36. Um, if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, feels is a unique word. Don't just write a question, feels he ought to what? Just write, he feels he ought to what? Um, I know the word he is not unique, and the quizzer won't know it yet, but I think it's a, a question that flows better and, and um, forces the quizzer to quote more of the full meaning of that phrase. So number four, this one's tough. So it's avoid writing questions that are incorrect theolo theologically or miss the desired meaning of the text, even if the question's are grammatically sound and valid. So the one I always remember is from, gosh, I can't, I can't remember the book now. I believe it's from the end of Hebrews. But there's a verse that starts, no one is sexually immoral. And so I had the, the interrogative question, who is sexually immoral? Answer, no one. Well, that's a valid question. It had a unique phrase in, or word in the answer or in the question. Um, it's grammatically correct. But it didn't really get to the meaning of what the text was saying. There's a lot more in that verse that adds context to why it's being said that no one is sexually immoral. And so as much as possible, try to examine the questions that you're writing and say, am I not conveying the correct meaning that I want to convey if only this question and answer is um, quoted? Now, again, I think this it's very tough to figure out um, 
these situations because they are grammatically correct and valid. So they won't, um, if you have some specific checks that kind of programmatic checks going through your questions, these aren't going to show up kind of like how spell check won't identify an incorrect homonym being used. Um, but as much as possible, I try to eliminate these from my question set. Yeah, certainly. And, uh, yeah, this one, you are right. It's from Hebrews. It's from, uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 16 from Hebrews. Hooray. That might be the book that I know best from my quizzing time. Yeah, it's a good one. So number five here, there's always a balance to strike between very, very short and very, very long question and answers. And as a question writer, I really take steps to, to ensure that I'm not specifically attempting to write um, unnecessarily short or unnecessarily long questions at the expense of meaning, flow, or context. So there are totally times where a short question is going to have really good flow and convey good meaning. Um, and similarly, there will be times where a very long question and answer will have good flow and convey good meaning. But I'm always trying to lend an eye towards how good is the meaning, how good is the flow, and is there a, an even better question than I can write? And that's kind of the overall theme here. Um, we're, we're starting with valid questions, and these might not even be above average or good questions. But I think there, there is a, um, a really good set of best questions that will test the quizzer's knowledge of the material well. It will reward quizzers who have um, wrestled with the material more, and it will convey more of the meaning from the Bible through those questions and answers. Yeah, indeed. Number six, just because you see the possibility of a multiple answer doesn't mean you have to force a question. Now, this this might be the one of this list that I'm most guilty of, because when I see a list or an and or something, I'm going to figure out how to write a multiple answer on it. Um, and the justification in my head that I use is because it's a multiple answer, it helps the quizzer narrow down to it, even if it's um, even if it has poor flow as as it's being read or listened to. And I I have to do a better job of asking myself, is this a really good question? Can I write a question of a different type that tests the same material with better flow? I've often found in these cases, too, that what I'll end up doing is actually writing a lengthier question to suit a, a, a to, to basically bring about a multiple answer question that is both valid and actually flows nicely. So, I mean, a, a quizzer might be able to jump on the second or third or, or, or something syllable of this question that's fairly long, and it's only the last couple of words that actually uh, bring about, or the last phrase or two that, that well, it would have to be two or more phrases, I guess, for a multiple answer, but it's the last couple of or more bits of it that actually turn it into a multiple answer. So like one example, uh, pretty close to where my eye, my eyes were just on it, where, oh, 734, uh, her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, and you could, you could do an interrogative or a, a, a standard multiple answer question, non-reference multiple answer question on her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both what? Uh, it's a little bit long. Uh, aim is a key word, or sorry, a unique word. Uh, so second syllable becomes key. Uh, but then, of course, you've got this longer question to get into the actual, uh, to turn it into a multiple answer question. But I look at that and I go, yeah, this is a, a pretty decent question because it's not convoluted. It's not 
quirky. It, it, it does flow quite well. It's fairly obvious once you, you know, mentally you get her aim. Okay, great. I know where that is. That is my mind is in 734. You just start quoting. Um, generally speaking, I like questions that don't try to kind of trick the quizzer. So if a quizzer just starts quoting and as long as they're quoting accurately and within context, they get the question right. Um, I, I really like those kind of questions. Yep. Do we have time for a few more, Griffin? Yeah, let's go for a few more. All right, number seven. This one's kind of a loose one, but I say be aware when using rarer interrogative words like how and which and whose. Oftentimes, just using what is going to be more clear to the quizzer. And this one is definitely a matter of style. If you have a reference question on the phrase the Lord's people, whose people is probably better grammatically than what people um, but sometimes those rare interrogative words can throw a quizzer off. Um, and so I just try to try to be um, empathetic to the quizzer as I'm writing these questions and not write, not attempt to write um, a clever, a cleverly used interrogative word. Yeah, indeed. Number eight is questions with the interrogative first shouldn't be either sought after or avoid avoided. Just look for well-phrased and flowing questions that test the quizzer's knowledge of the material. There are many cases in any material where there are going to be really good questions that start with the interrogative word. On average, these questions are going to be unique later and take more syllables to be unique. But that's part of the overall test for a quizzer. Um, not everything is going to be unique on the on the first syllable. Not everything is going to be unique only on the 6th, 7th, or 8th syllable. There's a mix. And so quizzers that know there's a mix and know what speed to jump at to both win jumps and in the long run um, get a high accuracy of questions correct, in my mind are the ones that should be rewarded because that's a lot of work. And if they're able to study well to know the material, do the work to know what that jump point is and consistently hit that jump point, I think it should be rewarded by a varied, um, randomly generated question set. Yeah, completely agreed. Super agreed. Number nine, you don't need to write the same number of interrogatives per verse or per chapter. Just write the best ones. Um, and this is another one that I'm guilty of because I'll, I'll say in chapter nine, on average, I wrote two interrogatives per verse. But in chapter 10, on average, I wrote three interrogatives per verse. And it'll make me want to go back to chapter nine to see if I missed some interrogatives. And often it's just because the density of unique words and phrases um, is not constant across the whole material. And so there are going to be little pockets where you write a lot of interrogative questions and then other pockets where you write a lot of reference questions. Um, and so attempting to hit some quota is often going to cause you to write less good questions. You may still be writing valid questions, but they would be less good. They would have either less flow or contain less of a complete thought um, or be less clear to the quizzer when they're being read. Yeah, and this was something when I – my first couple of years of writing questions, I would fall into this trap a lot because I would look at uh, you know a couple of different verses that would have you know wildly – well, no, maybe not wildly, but they would have different numbers of, of standard questions written to them. And I would think, oh, well, I've got to uh, – I've got to write more here and less over here. And generally what would end up happening is uh, short – uh, verses, you know, there are verses that are, you know, maybe five, 10 words long. And then there are, uh, verses that are 20, 30, 40 words long or something like that. They're, they're significantly longer. And so naturally you have having more material in one verse means you're going to have more opportunity 
to write uh, interrogative questions out of that verse than another. It's not particularly constant. And so what I would find myself doing in a lot of cases is in the shorter verses, I would be writing really bizarre questions, trying to squeeze out like one or two extra interrogatives from a particular verse. And it would lead me into writing poor questions. And then in the lengthier verses, I would be writing too few questions. I mean, I would still be writing a certain number. Let's say if I was aiming at like, say, three or four or whatever, I would still get those three or four, but then I would stop and there would be parts of that material, parts of that verse that I wouldn't be writing questions on at all. Yep. So verse length is another variable that means that you shouldn't aim to hit us a, um, a consistent number of verses of a type or even, a number of questions of a type or even questions in general per verse or per chapter or per book or anything like that. And I just have two more, Griffin. I think we have time to get to these. Yeah, go for it. And I like these last two quite a lot. So number 10 is if a phrase is a great multiple answer, for example, they went down to Syria and Capernaum, they went down where? then there's no need to also force an interrogative question like they went down to Syria and where. You've already tested the material with the multiple answer in an absolutely amazing multiple answer. You don't need to write an average to below average interrogative on the exact same material. Yep, totally agreed. And then the last one is, while you shouldn't seek to eliminate difficult interrogatives, so interrogatives that aren't unique until the fifth word or the eighth syllable, um, so while that shouldn't be a, necessarily be a goal, if there are interrogatives that aren't unique until the fifth word or so, that is a signal to me to search that phrase and see if there's a, a really, really good reference question I can write on the, on that phrase and test the material, test the quizzer with a reference question instead of an interrogative that is unique on the fifth word. And so the overriding um, theme there is seek to test each bit of material using the best applicable question type. Right. Absolutely. And this, of course, leads into another or suggest another problem I had uh, when in the first couple of years that I was writing questions where I would look at these statistics of the questions that I was writing on a given chapter. And I would say, oh, well, you know, I had such and such number of multiple answers, such and such number of references and so on. And I would try to... Uh, you know, certain chapters would have maybe high reference, low multiple answer relative to interrogatives, and another one would be quite the opposite or something like that. And I would try to sort of tamp down and sort of bring those into more of a linear fashion between uh, or a relative linear fashion between different chapters. And of course, it, it's the same problem uh, before. Certain verses, certain materials lend themselves much more naturally to a multiple answer, much more naturally to a reference, much more naturally to a uh, an interrogative or whatever type of question type you're talking about. Uh, and sort of my trying to force different question types rather than just bringing out the best questions for the material kind of got me into some poor question writing uh, from time to time. There were many cases where I would be talking with another quiz master about a specific question, and we wouldn't ask, is this valid? We would ask, is this good? And so we were just bouncing a question that one of us had written off another quiz master to say, hey, do you think this question should be written um, I know it's valid, but is it good? And I've had a lot of those conversations over the years, which I think has helped um, enhance a lot of my opinions about what makes a really good question and has helped me write questions that are clear to the quizzers um, and provide a really good test for them. Yeah. 
All right. Well, with that said, a couple of uh, quick announcements towards the end of the podcast here. Uh, we had mentioned before last uh, podcast and a few others that the CBQZ application is online. It is pretty stable and, and usable. Uh, and we are inviting anybody interested in or participating in using it to log in or, or actually go in and register, create for yourself an account and uh, give it a whirl. Uh, it's predominantly or initially it was intended for quiz masters. I guess initially it was just intended for me because I was I just wanted a tool, uh, but I've been sharing it around. And, and uh, so it's sort of it's set in the mindset of a quiz master is sort of how it's it's developed. That being said said, it's highly applicable and highly usable for coaches uh, running uh, questions and running practices at a church level. And especially if you've got like a, a handful of coaches who are friends of yours and maybe you want to share questions with each other or maybe you write some questions and share it with others or vice versa. Maybe there's a, a question writing guru coach and uh, he or she wants to share their question set with others. Uh, CBQZ is a great way to do that along with all the other little whiz bang tools in terms of reference uh, lookups and searches and and uh, all sorts of other little gizmos and gadgets. And it also has, at the moment, some basic uh, quiz process flow functionality. And I'm currently working on adding uh, score uh, keeping uh, functionality. I'm hoping to actually have a release of that before the weekend uh, because Scott wants to use it to track some quizzes for the Great West uh, practice that's this Saturday. Uh, not sure if I'll make that deadline, but I'm working really hard to do it. So if it's not uh, there by Friday, certainly pretty close to Friday, there's going to be some basic score uh, scorekeeping functionality included in, his, in it as well. So if you're at all interested, if you're a quiz master or a coach or an answer judge, there's answer judge uh, tools on there as well. Uh, take a look at the app. It's at cbqz.org slash app. Or if you just go to cbqz.org, there's a link somewhere, I think in the header or something to application or app or something like that, and it'll get you uh, to the system. If you are from a... Um, a district that is not right now. There's only the P and W district that's there, uh, which is is totally fine. It doesn't matter at least right now. Uh, if you're from outside the P and W district, we'll just approve your account as being part of the P and W district. But if you think there might be any kind of interest or use of the of the platform in your district, if you're outside of P and W, uh, please let me know. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org, and we can very easily and very quickly set up your own district uh, and set up uh, district directors and all sorts of roles and permissions and so forth for you. So it's, it's pretty easy. And then uh, you'll have sort of your own little universe to, to work in. And of course, I've mentioned it before, but please email us your questions uh, for the podcast to iq at cbqz.org and follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. And Scott, do you have any anything else you want to add? You have hit all of our closing bullet points, Griffin. I've got nothing else to add. All right. Well, cool. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Scott. All right. Happy studying. <laughs>